Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Novel Review, a literary podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host and today I will be exploring William Faulkner's 1930 novel As I Lay Dying. But before I dive into this sweeping novel, a mantelpiece moment, a chance to highlight and discuss my own literary life focusing on the magical of life rather than the mundane. And today I picked another one of my little silly little witty diary entries, but this one was a bit more fun. It was riding home from work. Uh, so this is the piece, and I might explain why I picked this for this particular episode after I've read it. On the map, the journey is small, direct enough when you trace your finger across the lines that indicate streets. That is not how it is when you are riding. The quiet, careful inspection replaced by cars, taxis, buses, and other bike riders all participating in that afternoon egress, spreading like water through sand upon the paths that will lead them home. My path becomes twisted in some humorously cruel journey of wonder. The city exposes me as a tourist. I know the direction to head, yet the horizon always seems to move with me, or rather, away from me. And I entitled this one, Riding Home From Work and Getting Lost. And it w- I was riding through London, and it was actually kind of spectacular, but also a little bit annoying because I was trying to get home. But it just seemed to be, I knew where to go, just sort of head, I just had the mentality that you kind of head in a general direction, and the streets will be kind to you and you'll get home. And that is not how it is because there is a subtlety to London streets that sort of, you know, they turn slightly this way and then slightly another way and suddenly you are just completely lost. And I like I ended up seeing riding through Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace, then suddenly I was on the Thames and I'm miles and miles away from home. And it was kind of this Odyssean journey across London, which was very scenic and very beautiful, but not particularly what I was after that day but I picked it because yeah like I said it was an Odyssean journey and that sort of comes into play a bit in this episode but a bit more on that later. For now a bit of housekeeping as always all the scripts from the episodes are available on my website just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod so head along they're all free to use for all to enjoy. So on with the novel. Okay, what a whirlwind this novel is. It's Faulkner's fifth and it's considered one of his best and one of the best of the 20th century. And this was my first Faulkner. And I'd heard a lot about Faulkner, of course, mostly touching upon the first episode of The Road by Cormac McCarthy that I did, but I never really knew what to expect. And I'll be honest, it was not that. (laughs) Like, I did not, yeah, I didn't know what to expect and it just was not that at all. And that's not a bad thing by any stretch, but I didn't expect what I read. I would say I sort of had this idea that he was this really Southern Gothic writer of American literature and I found this novel rather comical. It wasn't quite a dark story, but maybe that's kind of just my perception of it and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Maybe a little backstory to Faulkner and some of the novel. 
Faulkner said this novel came together over a six-week period between midnight to 4am while technically working. And I say technically because he would work the first eight hours of a 12-hour shift at the University of Mississippi Powerhouse, shoveling coal, and then he would write on onion skin paper, which is a translucent form of paper that, because of its translucent nature, resembles the skin of an onion, hence the name. So it's kind of cool, uh, but interestingly, and this is fantastic, Faulkner wrote it and didn't change a single word of what he produced, which is not only a testament to his writing, but also genius in the sense that he's one of the great writers that adopted the stream of consciousness narrative style that was very, very prominent for, for modernist writers of this of this era. So any words or phrases that might have seemed off that normally you might buff out or shine out in an edit could just be pegged down to just the shifting nature of the thought process. So rather genius move by him. So I think now is probably a great time for an overview, just so that we're all understanding of what's going on. This novel concerns itself with the death of Addie Bundren and how her family embarks upon a rural quest to honour her wish to be buried in her hometown of Jefferson, Mississippi. Now, in the early chapters of this novel, Addie is alive but in poor health, and she watches her coffin be made by her son Cash, who is said to have carpenter notions, and holds up each plank for Addie to inspect and approve from the window, which is kind of kind of an, a, a, a comically austere premise already, and that's sort of where I found the comedic relief in this novel. And the whole story has this similar kind of vibe, that something's slightly off. It's told through 59 chapters from 15 different narration points of view, which, you know, it's it, it does make it difficult, but I, I, I will touch on that. Because of these alternating viewpoints, combining with Faulkner's use of the stream of consciousness, I initially found this novel a bit difficult to follow because realistically, there isn't a coherence of narrative to follow from a staple point of character. Instead, it's like you hover above everyone but get a spiraling view of events from different viewpoints, and so you can never settle. Although I eventually did, but it can be tough, and I think that's one of those techniques, the stream of consciousness, that can drive a lot of people away from this novel or novels in in general. Now, that's not to say it's not a good book, because it is, and I ended up actually really enjoying it. I am more just saying that, in my opinion, very heavy modernist novels like this sometimes don't age great for perhaps more casual readers of literature. And that's also not to say that you have to be a literary snob to enjoy this, because many people do. And, you know, even after Damon Galgut's 2021 prize winning, uh, Booker Prize winning novel, it's clear that stream of consciousness is still a highly valued and respected mode of literary technique. But it's more that you just have to concentrate that tiny bit harder than normal, which some people might not want to do. And to be clear, it's a different kind of concentration because you are essentially tracing someone else's thoughts. Our own stream of consciousness is easy because we understand our thoughts and the paths we are tracing as it happens live, but observe someone else's and it can become quite dislocating. Basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is that some people want to go deep sea fishing and fight with meter-long kingfish for a few hours, reminiscent of Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea, and some people just want to park up on the beach on a 4pm on a Friday arvo and have a beer, fishing line lazily tossed in the water, just happy to be outside in the sunshine and enjoying what fishing allows them to do, drinking a beer. And look, at times I want to be both these people. Sometimes I want to be 
in the middle of the ocean hunting a fish and sometimes I just want to be on the beach tossing the line in casually. It just depends on the mood. And uh, as I'm saying all this, I do hope someone out there listening does agree with me. Or maybe you're all just shaking your heads like, nah, it's just you, Seamus, you crazy. But anyways, that's sort of how I feel towards these sorts of stories. So let's focus on As I Lay Dying, since that's technically what we're here for. I know I've kind of gone off on a tangent, which is which is ironic, because that's <laughs> kind of what the book is about. Let's start off with the title. The title of the novel is a bloody great title on its own, but there is some depth to it that adds to this story. The line is taken from Sir William Maris's edition of The Odyssey, published in 1925, and this is the quote that I managed to find, managed to track down. It's actually incredibly difficult to find this particular edition of The Odyssey. This is Homer's Odyssey, sorry. And this is the quote. But in mine ears, most pietous rang the cry of Priam's daughter, Cassandra, whom the treacherous Clytemnestra slew at my side, while I, as I lay dying upon the sword, raised up my hands to smite her. So this makes up part of Faulkner's favourite speech from the Odyssey, and that's interesting because the Odyssey is the tale of Odysseus journeying home to get home to his wife alive and well, whereas as I lay dying is almost an inversion of this story. It's the story of a family trying to bury their dead mother. And I think for me, that's where the humor comes in. The fact that this novel is incredibly dramatic, very large, very verbose, very outrageous for what is essentially a needless task. While I completely understand and respect final wishes, there has to be a logical process to achieve them. Otherwise, they are just absurd. From the offset, the whole premise is absurd. A family transporting a decaying corpse in a wooden box that isn't refrigerated for 40 miles by cart across a five-day period, not helped in the slightest by the father figure, or the father I should say, Ants, who loves to carry on about how hard he is done by life. But this all kind of ties into the wonderful absurdity of the novel. Individually, the characters seem uniquely absurd, but together for me they formed the bonds of a family. Unique in their own individual ways, united under one ideal and serving it, although really serving their own self-interests in the process, but all under the idea of this family. Twice upon this journey for the ages, they nearly lose the coffin. The first is when they try to cross a washed-out bridge across a river, and the second is when a fire starts in a barn with suspicious origins. In a way, the coffin for me took on this almost comical side character, juggled between the characters like a hot potato that no one can hold on for too long before it has to be passed on and nearly lost from its clumsiness. Now, I've painted kind of a bleak picture about this family, but there are also perhaps more poignant moments of family bonds. Ants selfishly sells his seashells by the seashore. No, Ants selfishly sells his middle child's Jules horse and Jewel tries to leave his dysfunctional family but cannot bring himself to turn his back on his family or his mother. This is an interesting complex because, like I called it poignant, but it could also be seen as depressing. The standards Jewel imposes upon himself means that he can't leave this abusive and dysfunctional family though leaving would be the smart thing to do. And I think that plays into one of the wonderful things this novel does, which is explore identity. The novel, for me, concerned itself largely with identity. The death of Addie Bundren is the first stone of an avalanche for a lot of these characters as they wrestle with identity crises. And throughout the whole novel, the coffin and Addie inadvertently 
is the burden they literally carry with them that binds them to this quest, this task they continue with even when it is dangerous to the point of realistically stopping. As I mentioned before, a very good point, point for this would have been when crossing the river. Vardaman is one of the children and at six is the youngest. Early in the novel he catches a fish, which of course, after he has caught and killed it, he understands it has changed. This sparks a recurring theme throughout the book of Vardaman calling his dead mother a fish, because, as he's only six, Vardaman is confronted and confused by the reality of death. Therefore, he concludes, like the fish, his mother has changed and therefore is a fish. I found it wonderfully childish and humorous, but also quite human, because when we die, who is to say what we are to become? You might laugh and say, well, not a fish, but, you know, one will never know. Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies of the novel comes at the conclusion of the novel itself. Ants, in town, reappears with a new woman, calling her Mrs. Bundren, implying that he has taken this woman as his wife, very shortly after completing the task of burying his dead wife, who led him on this initial task. It's not just the fact that he takes this new woman, but more so that he calls her Mrs. Bundren, implying that the woman whom this family just underwent this Odyssean-like journey for is now no longer a mortal concern. It's a sobering note to end on, contemplating the replaceability of all of us at a moment's notice. Faulkner is said to have inspired Cormac McCarthy, who I did episode one on, who is one of my favourite authors, and I can see threads of McCarthy here. There is that exploration of humanity, the keen observation of the everyday, but I also think it's the humour, the random burst that rests upon the veil of society. You don't have to tell jokes. Just simply take a magnifying glass to society and the humour will present itself. So that was William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. What would I rate this novel? It's a tough one because the story took some time to get used to and to get into, and I feel that, that it would actually benefit a second read but I'm also not sure I want to. I would give it a 3.5, which isn't bad for a first Faulkner, and like he will definitely be back. I will read him again for sure. Now enough about Faulkner. What am I reading this week? This week I have started reading a novel that is considered to be lost in the the circles of the classics, and it's a novel called The Beetle by Richard Marsh, which is a horror fiction story from 1897, and it came out the same year as Dracula, which I am for sure going to do an episode on, so don't you worry about that. But interestingly, it actually initially outsold Dracula. The story itself is fun, very easy to read and to follow. It's this spooky kind of fun, and I kind of know a broad overview from Wikipedia, though I'm not sure how much of a spoiler this is to the actual story, so tune out now for a few seconds if you don't want to have it ruined but it is the story about a shape-shifting ancient Egyptian entity seeking revenge on a British member of parliament. I mean, that sounds just batshit insane, but that's a, it's an incredibly wild premise. And once I'd stumbled upon that, I just had to read it, the book, so I got my hands on it. And I mean, if that little brief overview sort of tickled your fancy and it grabs your attention, grab a book. You know what to do. There'll be an episode on it because I'm vastly enjoying this novel. Now, as always, if you have listened this far, please consider the like and subscribe in five stars. Head along to the website if you would like to support the pod further, but always your attention has been my pleasure. So let's end this ep with a quote from the man this man inspired, Cormac McCarthy. Keep a little fire burning, however small, however hidden.